This is the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 1, Episode 6. The first of two parts on the history of the New International Version of the Bible. Over the past few weeks, I've covered the history of the King James Version and many of the versions between it and the New Revised Standard Version. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. In the next few episodes, I will wrap up the history of the Bible versions I will be referring to with the New International Version. As a note, I've been purposely calling the versions by their full names, since that's how most people acquainted with them refer to each. But the same is not true with the New International Version, as it is commonly referred to as the NIV. So, in this episode, I will do the same. Let's get started. Howard Long, an engineer from Seattle who worked with General Electric, was on a business trip to Portland, Oregon in 1955. As the story goes, he was dining with another businessman at the Multoma Hotel, now an Embassy Suites, when the conversation turned to Long's Christian faith. As the two businessmen began to talk about spiritual issues, Long suggested that they read his King James Version of the Bible together. After the meal, Long began to read aloud several familiar verses to his colleague. When he looked up, Long was confused by the man's body language. As Long later recounted, the man had become red in the face. Long was concerned, and then his companion burst out in laughter. Long left the situation frustrated, as his personal Bible, the King James, had failed to communicate its message to his companion. He saw a clear gap between what the Bible was attempting to communicate and the actual message being received. In this instance, the gap was punctuated by laughter, and it wasn't that the man was uneducated. In Long's opinion, it was the King James archaic version of the English language that was the issue. As I have mentioned in previous episodes, language changes over time, and it was this evolution that frustrated Long. That moment was the catalyst for Long to push for a new translation, a translation that was simple enough for English-speaking children to understand. Upon returning to Seattle, Long approached his pastor, the Reverend Peter DeJong, with his thoughts, stating that the Bible has been translated, and I quote, into hundreds, a couple thousand tongues. And when we run out of tongues to translate it into, someday we're going to translate it into English. Then, the two men, along with the other members of the congregation of their Christian Reformed Church, prepared a petition for a new translation that was submitted to the national governing body for that denomination. As a note, the Christian Reformed Church is a modest-sized Dutch Reformed denomination based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Their petition was initially rejected, but the body reconsidered the issue in 1957 and formed a committee to research it. As with many things in life, timing is everything, and this proved true for Howard Long as well. At the same time that he, his pastor, and the congregation were petitioning their church for a new translation, a broader movement was coalescing. If you will remember back to the first episode on the history of the New Revised Standard Version, I covered, among others, the history of its predecessors, and in this case, specifically, the American Standard Version and the Revised Standard Version. The Christian Reformed Church had previously approved the American Standard Version in 1926, but it never gained enough traction to displace the King James Version among its congregations. As for the Revised Standard Version, it was adopted by many larger denominations, but it was initially rejected by the most conservative denominations because the Version's Translation Committee was largely populated with what were considered to be liberals, sometimes referred to as modernist. This is not a political liberal, 
but it is used in a traditional religious sense. In this way, the story is very similar to the debate that King James had to deal with in formulating the process of translating the version that bears his name. The membership of the Revised Standard Versions Committee was seen as having a so-called liberal bias in the way it handled various Old Testament messianic passages, such as the use of the phrase young woman instead of virgin in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. The Christian Reformed Church in 1954 rejected the Revised Standard Version for use in its churches, believing that the version would not be acceptable to evangelicals. In 1957, the National Association of Evangelicals began to consider the idea of a new translation and therefore established a Bible Translation Committee. At the time, the National Association of Evangelicals consisted of the Assemblies of God USA, the Evangelical Congregation Church, the Evangelical Free Church of America, the Free Methodist Church of North America, the International Pentecostal Church of Christ, the Wesleyan Church, and the Mennonite Brethren Churches, among many others. The Christian Reformed Church and the National Association of Evangelicals met together to discuss the idea of a new translation in Grand Rapids in 1961. But even afterwards, there was still doubt as to whether they should go forward with a completely new translation, which they knew was a serious undertaking and could be extremely costly. Many among them felt that the Revised Standard Version would eventually be acceptable or at least altered to fit their desires and others thought that some consideration should be given to the Berkeley version that had been published in 1959, as well as the New American Standard Bible, which was in production at the time. Both groups met several times over the next few years, culminating in August 1965 at a meeting at Trinity Christian College, located in a suburb of Chicago. At this meeting, 32 biblical scholars from 28 Bible institutes, colleges, and seminaries representing a variety of denominations, resolved to prepare a, and I quote, contemporary English translation of the Bible as a collegiate endeavor of evangelical scholars. They also specified that the translation should be constructed in idiomatic 20th century English. The next year, their decision was endorsed by a gathering of 80 evangelical ministry leaders and scholars. Also at that time, a committee of 15 was chosen to supervise the translation. This independent, self-governing group became known as the Committee on Bible Translation and had its own governing constitution. The members were drawn from various evangelical churches in the U.S. and agreed to meet on a regular basis. The committee decided that instead of updating the King James Version, as other translations had, to instead start from scratch, using what they considered to be the best manuscripts available at the time. Similar to the methodology used by the other translations, the manuscripts to be translated were all in the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic of the Bible. Their goal was to produce a translation in the common language of the American people, meaning the U.S. and Canada. My apologies to the other countries on the two continents. The committee held to a clear goal for the new international version. Specifically, that it be, quoting here, an accurate, beautiful, clear, and dignified translation suitable for public and private reading, teaching, preaching, memorizing, and liturgical use. The New International Version was envisioned as a Bible version that would appeal specifically to evangelicals. The constitution of its translation committee stated, The purpose of the committee shall be to prepare a contemporary English translation of the Bible as a collegiate endeavor of evangelical scholars and they also restricted membership on the committee to those who were willing to subscribe to the following affirmation of faith. Another quote, The Bible alone, 
and the Bible in its entirety is the Word of God written, and therefore inerrant in the autographs. They also allowed the members of the committee to agree with the statements on Scripture in the Westminster Confession, the Belgic Confession, the New Hampshire Confession, or the creedal basis of the National Association of Evangelicals, or to some other comparable statement. Members of the committee were aware of the reasons for the conservative rejection of the Revised Standard Version, and so they intentionally avoided the so-called liberal aspects of that version. To many evangelicals, the most objectionable aspect of the Revised Standard Version was its policy of translating the Old Testament without taking into account the interpretations of the Old Testament passages embedded in the New Testament. Therefore, the members of the NIV Committee on Bible Translation stipulated in their translator's manual of 1968 that, quoting, the translation shall reflect clearly the unity and harmony of the Spirit-inspired writings, end quote. The Committee on Bible Translation chose teams of scholars to do the actual translation work, but before they were allowed to participate, each scholar, similar to the committee, had to confirm their belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. I know I said in the first episode that I was not going to wade into the inerrant versus infallible debate, and I'm not. But at this point, and since it was a requirement of the committee, I'll at least define what is meant by inerrant. Evangelical Christians believe that the Bible is inerrant, meaning simply that it is without error. From a high level, it's the belief in the total reliability and truthfulness of God's words. This inerrancy isn't only in the passages that speak about salvation, but also pertains to all historical and scientific statements as well. All in all, inerrancy relates to the Bible being not only accurate in matters related to faith and practice, but it is also accurate and without error regarding any statement. Well into the future, I'll cover what is called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. But if you're not that patient, or just curious, there are plenty of sources available that explore the topic. I'll post a link to it on the podcast Facebook page. And now back to the history. The Christian Reformed Church officially withdrew from the project in 1966, but a number of their leading scholars continued to work independently on the project. In 1968, Dr. Edwin Palmer was appointed by the committee to oversee the day-to-day operations of the project. He would serve in that role until his death in 1980. Dr. Palmer was a Harvard-educated theologian who served in the U.S. Marine Corps in the Pacific Campaign of World War II and no doubt would make a good subject for a podcast on his life. When it was first started, the translation was estimated to cost about half a million U.S. dollars. But soon thereafter, this amount was increased to $850,000. The project was financed by the New York Bible Society, agreeing in 1968 to provide $100,000 for the first year. By the end of 1975, just under $1.3 million had been spent, and the cost of the project had become so great that the New York Bible Society had to sell its office building to cover the expenses. But even that proved insufficient, and in 1976, a publisher, Zondervan, agreed to advance the Bible Society $250,000. As an aside, the New York Bible Society added the word international to the end of its name in 1971, then changed to the International Bible Society in 1988 when it moved from New York to Colorado. In 2009, they changed their name again to Biblica, Biblica currently holds the copyright to the NIV. The translation process was organized around the books of the Bible. Specifically, each book was assigned to a translation team made up of two lead translators, two translation consultants, and a stylistic consultant, if deemed necessary. 
The manuscript used for the Old Testament was the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia Masoretic Hebrew text. Other ancient texts were consulted as well, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Sumerian Pentateuch, the Aquila, the Sumachus and Theodosian, the Latin Vulgate, the Syriac Peshitta, the Aramaic Targum, and for the Psalms, the Juxa Hebraica of Jerome. These documents were in either Hebrew or Greek, depending on the specific text. The manuscript used for the New Testament was the Koine, Greek language editions from the United Bible Societies in Nestle Alon. Specifically, the New Testament translators used the first and second editions of the Greek New Testament published by the United Bible Societies, but it did not follow that text in all places. More recently, a Greek text which purports to give the readings adopted by the NIV Committee has been published titled A Reader's Greek New Testament. The translation process took 10 years and involved a team of over 100 scholars from the US, Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. The scholars were from many different denominations including Anglicans, Assemblies of God, Baptist, Christian Reformists, Lutherans, and Presbyterians. The initial translations were assigned to a team of scholars, and then their work was carefully scrutinized and revised by three separate intermediate editorial committees consisting of five biblical scholars. The committees validated the translation against the source text and assessed them for comprehensibility. The lead committee then submitted the intermediate version to stylistic consultants for suggestions to improve readability. Then, the text was submitted to a general committee consisting of 8 to 12 members. After that, the text was distributed to select outside critics and to all members of the Committee on Bible Translation. Additionally, samples of the translation were examined for clarity and ease of reading with pastors, students, scholars, and laypeople, who are deemed to represent the intended audience. That's a whole lot of reviews. A respectful view of scripture was also shown in the version's preface, and I quote, the translators were united in their commitment to the authority and infallibility of the Bible as God's word in written form." End quote. The creators of the NIV sought to bring the modern Bible readers as close as possible to the experience of the very first Bible readers, providing the best possible balance of transparency to the original documents and comprehension of the original meaning. But, to be clear, while the King James and New Revised Standard versions are word-for-word -word translations, the New International Version is not. Instead, it was designed to be a balance between a word-for-word -word translation and a thought-for-thought -thought translation. Sometimes you will see the phrase dynamic equivalence substituted for thought-for-thought. -thought. In other words, many parts of it are a paraphrase. In fact, many of the version's critics specifically label it as a paraphrase, hoping that their listeners will consider the word to be pejorative. I'll leave that judgment up to you. The New Testament was first published in 1973, in both the Old and New Testaments in 1978. The Apocrypha was never translated into a new international version. The initial printing of over a million copies sold out before the printing was complete. This was a strong testament to the demand for a version that could be easily understood. The translator's work did not end with the version's publication in 1978. The original mandate in 1965 was to maintain the Bible translation, always ensuring that the version reflects the very best of biblical scholarship in contemporary English, meaning that as earlier, older manuscripts were uncovered, and as the English language continued to evolve, the version would be updated to reflect these changes. After publication, the Committee on Bible Translation continued to meet yearly, 
1984, a minor revision was published taking into account the criticism that had accumulated since the initial publication of the New Testament over ten years prior. The Committee on Bible Translation still meets every year, reviewing the work in painstaking detail, because when translating God's inspired word, it's all about getting the words right. Despite misgivings by some pastors and academics, by 1986, the NIV had become, according to some sources, the best-selling English version of the Bible, the only one to displace the King James Version in almost 400 years, and it remains so today. One note, this means that in the year 1986, the NIV sold more copies than the King James, but not that there were more copies in circulation. In 1996, a version was published in Great Britain titled The Holy Bible, New International Version, Inclusive Language Edition. This edition provoked indignation among many conservative Christians who were using the older NIV, especially after the International Bible Society, the owner of the NIV copyright, stated that it planned to publish the version in the U.S. This led many to speculate that their plan was to replace older editions of the NIV. In this edition, gender-neutral word replacements were inserted in compliance with gender-neutral language guidelines agreed upon by the NIV Committee on Bible Translation in 1992. These proved to be highly controversial among conservatives. In the preface of that edition, the translators stated that, in their own words, it was often appropriate to mute the patriarchalism of the culture of the biblical writers through gender-inclusive language when this could be done without compromising the message of the Spirit. However, the adjustments were hard to reconcile with conservative views of the Bible's verbal inspiration. The whole affair caused many Christians to believe that the International Bible Society had at some point become of the liberal Christian persuasion. With the loud outcry, the International Bible Society in 1997 announced that the inclusive language edition would not be published in the U.S. under the name New International Version, and that it would, in the future, continue to publish the 1984 NIV unchanged. Let me take a moment and address this from the perspective of my personal opinion. And maybe I should have done this in the last episode, the one on the New Revised Standard Version, when the issue of gender neutrality first came up. We have a particular and peculiar problem in the English language. And that problem is that we really do not have a gender-neutral singular pronoun. When we want to use a pronoun to refer to a man, we use he, and for a woman, we use she. But what do we use when the gender is unspecified? In the common language, we would use the word they, but in doing so, we then do not know if the speaker is referring to one person or to a group of people. We could use the word it, but that seems extremely awkward when referring to a person. We could also use the word one, but that may lead the listener or reader to think that we are counting. So we really are left in a state of limbo. With that not-so-small nuance explained, how would you translate a word into English, a word that was clearly a gender-neutral singular pronoun in a foreign language? Go ahead and think about it. In fact, write me with your answer. As for how I would do it, well, that really doesn't matter. But you should be able to see where the trouble lies. The limits of our language forces the translator to choose either a gender or to make the passage less clear. And remember that many of the base text did use a gender-neutral word, but when they were initially translated into English, especially in older versions, such as the King James, the translator chose to use a masculine word. In later versions, the translator attempted to correct this, but many readers were resistant and seemingly stuck on the masculine pronoun. 
and therefore resistant to that change. And, in my opinion still, most importantly, the overall message gets lost. The message that the word is for all people, no matter the gender. And I'm stepping down from that soapbox, at least for now. A children's version of the NIV was first proposed by Zondervan in 1991, and a committee of the International Bible Society began work on it the next year. In it, the NIV was revised down to a third grade reading level. The New Testament translation appeared in 1995, and the complete Bible, Sans the Apocrypha Still, was published in the fall of 1996, titled The Kid's Bible. Gender-neutral language was regularly employed in this version, though this fact was not mentioned in its marketing. When this was discovered, James Dobson, among other evangelical leaders, publicly opposed the version, and so the International Bible Society published a revision without the gender-neutral language in the fall of 1998. Other versions based on the NIV are the New International Version UK and the New International Reader's Version, designed to be an easier-to-read and understand version of the NIV. In 2005, a substantial revision of the NIV, known as Today's New International Version, was published by Zondervan. The version's principal change from the NIV was a more gender-inclusive translation of certain terms, similar to the New Revised Standard Version, which I covered in the previous episode. It should come as no surprise that the gender-inclusiveness proved to be controversial, and therefore the Today's New International Version was subjected to a great deal of criticism from the evangelical world. Sales were poor, and it went out of print in 2009. In September 2009, Biblica announced that another revision of the NIV was in process. This revised edition was first published on the internet in November 2010, while the printed edition was published in March 2011, using the name New International Version, without any further description, such as second edition. An examination of the text revealed that this new edition of the NIV was merely a minor revision of the today's New International Version of 2005. This edition is intended to eventually replace the 1984 NIV, which Zondervan announced would no longer be published. It is important to understand that from 2011 on, the NIV will not be the same NIV that had been embraced since 1984. When purchasing a Bible, NIV will now mean the 2011 NIV. Previously printed copies of the 1984 NIV were to be sold out and no longer available. At some point in the future, when an author quotes a Bible passage in a book and notes it as coming from the NIV, it will probably be the 2011 NIV. But given the quantities currently in circulation, unless the quoter specifies, one would never know which version was utilized. How about that? I just used a gender-neutral pronoun. Similar to its predecessor, the 2011 New International Version was translated using gender-neutral translation rules, resulting in the replacement of gender-specific words, such as man, woman, he, she, son, or daughter, with gender-neutral words, such as person, they, or child. Some critics have claimed that in many cases, these replacements were made even when the language of the base text clearly intended a specific gender. With all the fuss about gender-neutral language and gender-inclusiveness, I'll take some time next week and examine several passages side-by-side side with older versions. Then, you can be the judge. The NIV has also been supplemented by numerous study Bibles with extensive notes on the text and background information to make the biblical stories even more comprehensible. These include the NIV Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible, the Concordia Study Bible, the Zondervan-published NIV Study Bible, the Wesleyan Revision, the Reflecting God Study Bible, 
in the Life Application Study Bible. In 1979, the committee decided to produce a version of the New Testament in Spanish titled La Santa Biblia, Nuevo Version Internacional, and sometimes abbreviated NVI. However, this version was simply a translation from the English version to the Spanish language. In 1990, a new Spanish translation was begun and headed by the doctors René Padilla and Luciano Arjemilio. This translation followed a different methodology than the previous by translating the historic manuscripts directly into Spanish of both testaments, sidestepping English, and producing a complete Spanish New International Version in 1999. Today, the NIV is reputed to be the most widely read Bible in contemporary English. Of course, this designation has two limitations centering on the words read and contemporary. To me, that phrase is similar to when I hear that something is the fastest growing fill-in-the-blank in America. And that could be a sport, a brand, or really anything. But the phrase isn't as meaningful as it seems on its face. Something can be the fastest growing when it goes from 100 units sold to 1,000. But there could be a competitor that went from 10,000 to 20,000 and both sold and grew more units, but the rate of growth was numerically slower. The distinction is all in the wording. It's widely believed that the King James Version is the most widely used, but of course, its language is not contemporary English. And, according to the Christian Business Association, the New International Version has become the most popular selling English translation of the Bible, having sold more than 450 million copies worldwide. There is no doubt that the NIV is a wildly popular Bible. And let's just leave it at that. No other honors need to be bestowed. So which one sells more? To me, it doesn't matter. I will be using both. Stepping down from my soapbox yet again. I'm stopping the episode this week at that point, and we'll begin next week with a dive into the problems posed when a translation is done via paraphrase instead of a word-for-word methodology. As I mentioned last week, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments, questions, and essentially any correspondence can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the term Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.